Okay, I just had to do this because I think this is hilarious. I don't know if you've heard of this before, Chelsea. Have you heard the birds aren't real movement? No. Okay. So this happened in New York. This came from uh, NewYorkUniversityNews.com, published on October 17, 2022. Article title, Birds Aren't Real Protests Flocks to Washington Square. The conspiracy group Birds Aren't Real held its largest protest to date to prove an avian surveillance state on Saturday, October 15th. Tish, first-year Thomas Powderly, started following the Birds Aren't Real movement in 2020. Around the beginning of the pandemic, he had seen the group's demonstrations, including one in which they stormed Twitter's San Francisco headquarters to demand the company change its logo and decided he wanted to participate. I'd seen other rallies in other cities before, Powderly said. I just moved here a month ago, so I was like, I'm totally going to go. Birds Aren't Real hosted its biggest rally ever in Washington Square Park on Saturday, October 15th. Hundreds of participants crowded the north side of the park, holding signs that expressed a range of anti-avian sentiments, including birds aren't real, open your eyes, pigeons are liars, and wake up America. Every time a flock of birds circled Washington Square Arch, participants would boo. You know some people go their entire life where their eyes are never open, Peter McKindo, the creator of the group, said. What's opened your eyes? With its rhetoric similar to conspiracy theories like QAnon, outsiders to the group sometimes become confused. For years, Makindo stood adamantly for the conspiracy, refusing to break character. Others joined him. I believe we alerted the people of New York City about three weeks ago that we will be here, but we've been everywhere. Chicago, Kansas, Los Angeles, Texas, Arkansas, Missouri, said Claire Cronus, the self-proclaimed public information officer for Birds Aren't Real. No, we just want to let the people know the truth, that 12 billion birds were genocided by the United States government, CIA. The CIA wiped them all out. The last birds were alive in 2001. In a 2021 interview with the New York Times, McKindo admitted that the movement intends to be an absurd reaction to internet misinformation, a place for cosplaying conspiracy theorists, and embracing political madness. For many non-participants, the most recent protest volume and intensity made them unsure about the true intent of birds are. I thought it was critiquing conspiracy theories that are blown out of proportion online. Ashanti Jowers, a Steinhardt first year, said, like Pizzagate, like saying birds aren't real. McKindo arrived at the park in a decked out birds aren't real van during Saturday's protest, which caused crowds to rush towards Washington Square North. A bagpipe player performed songs including Amazing Grace and Taps. When McKindo stood atop the white van screaming propaganda, law enforcement lingered nearby. Attendees attempted to hand park rangers signs they weren't interested. Police are trying to stop us, McKindo said. Who do you think called them here? The crowd responded without hesitation. The birds! <laughs> Counter-protesters, rumored to be hired actors, stood nearby with a message of their own. Investigate Peter McKindo, and we demand birds aren't real tax returns. You look at the symbols of our country, said Robert Bella, the president of the counter-protest group Birds Are Real. You better believe it's an eagle, and that's real. <laughs> a speech given by Connor Gato, a friend of McKindo, only further baffled bystanders. Gatos claimed that he had been raised by parents who warned him about Birds Aren't Real conspiracy, and that his father founded the movement after a CIA whistleblower leaked him the information of the 1970s. This man who looked like Matthew McConaughey told me how the birds disappeared, Steinhardt, first year Jalen Holmes said. 
With nearly 400,000 followers on Instagram, Birds Aren't Real has a wide social media reach. The account has posted interviews and articles in which Kindo has broken character, discussing the satirical foundation of the movement. However, during the protest, he only continued to embrace the character he plays. If you live in New York City, odds are you're brainwashed, McKindo told WSN. Unfortunately, the education system in New York is collapsing. We're trying to implement reverse ornithology in the common core school systems, and maybe in a couple generations it will be resolved. But it starts to take. It starts here, it starts with us. Change happens on a local level. Talk to your neighbors, talk to your family, let them know. So yeah, if you want to learn more about the Birds Aren't Real movement, I believe they have a website. It's just birdsaren'treal.com. It is very much so just a satire of a conspiracy theory, but it's a lot of fun to watch. And I need to specify that it's a satire because I hope it doesn't happen, but you have to just plan for the worst. I am glad that you specified that because I was totally thinking like, I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't know it's a satire and think that it's real because even yeah. I was thinking that it's real because I don't put anything past anyone anymore. Yeah, and if you want to get gear, they have shirts and hats on their website and you can learn more about it there. But with that, let's get into this episode. Let's do it. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, the only place to turn in the event of a cryptid attack, which probably means we should do an episode on that at some point. That's not this episode. We are your ever niche dilemma solving hosts, Taylor and Chelsea. Today, we are following up somewhat on the last episode that we did. I wouldn't say it's a two-parter, but it's kind of a two-parter. need one for the other. Yeah. Last week talked about the Philadelphia experiment, and today we are now going to talk about the more crazy parts of that. Yes, there are somehow more crazy parts of it. And move it into Montauk. And with that, I'm just going to move it off to Chelsea, who has taken on the brunt of the work on this episode. There's a lot of moving off on this. I flicked into the Montauk, Mon, Montauk, yeah, I just said that right. We're going to have the Montauk? Yeah, we're going to Montauk about Montauk. The Montauk Project, which is the U.S. military's alleged mind control program conducted at Camp Hero slash Montauk Air Force Station, among other things that we will probably get into. Yeah, we probably will. And if Montauk sounds familiar, it might be from a lot of things, actually. First off, it's a hamlet in the town of East Hampton in Suffolk County, New York, on the eastern end of the south shore of Long Island. You could know it because of if you're really cool, and this is how I would identify you as cool. Is it the Jim Carrey movie? Montauk? Oh, yeah, it is in that one. That is, that's where it takes place. What's Uh, the name of that movie? Eternal Sunshine of yeah. the Spotless Mind does take place in Montauk, which I recognized from Montauk Monster. That's how I would recognize you immediately uh, if you were yes. cool. Yes. Or, you know, if you're just very big into 90s pop culture, the, the cast of Friends goes to a beach house in Montauk for an episode. Oh, yeah. That's where Ross's girlfriend shaves her head, right? Yeah. Yes. And I think I think Chandler has to pee on Monica at Montauk. Oh, yeah. Because she's so much stuff fish. happens there. I didn't realize yeah. that was in Montauk. It is is in Montauk. Jen was re-watching it not that long ago. Well, actually a long time ago now. But I was like, oh shit, like Montauk, because I know it from the stuff. Huh, I never picked that up. And now that we've gone over all the pop culture references of where you would recognize Montauk from, 
The Montauk Project has it all. Time travel, clairvoyance, the development of psychological mind control. That's not really all, but I'm just trying to relate to you that it does have it all. Not friends, not eternal sunshine. It was not any of the stuff I probably just mentioned to you, other than it does take place in Montauk. It's some of the, that stuff, and it's still good stuff. And some of you who have not heard of the Montauk Project, if you didn't just identify with one single thing that we just said there, so I guess you're not cool, like by our standards, but you may have watched Stranger Things, which may mean that you are more familiar with the Montauk Project than you think. Fun fact, Stranger Things is based on, among other things, the Montauk Project. And Montauk was tossed around as a title for the show instead of Stranger Things. That's how tied it is to Montauk Project. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, They went with a better title. Way better yeah, title. Way better title. I would find it ruined, actually, if... Wouldn't be as fun if it was titled Montauk yeah, because then you'd be making comparisons. You wouldn't just be watching it and be like, this rings a bell to me. Let me delve into my conspiracy theory vault and see. Well, what and especially is. like the entire. And sorry, I only watched season one and then I got bored halfway through episode one of season two. But the entire thing about it was the aesthetic of Stranger Things being like a Stephen King novel from the 80s, which you can't do with Montauk. You can't do with Montauk. Oh, no, no, no. You couldn't have done that. It wouldn't have had the same draw, I don't think, if you named it Montauk, because then it would be so much more. It wouldn't just be a story you're telling. It would be more like tied to conspiracy theories than its own like kind of thing. Fair enough. So I'm not sure where to start because I would usually say at the beginning, but the beginning is kind of the philadelphia experiment and let's also time is not linear so exactly there's no real beginning yeah exactly so let's just say this talk of montauk originates with a guy named preston nichols releases a book entitled the montauk project and we're gonna see a lot of similarities between the previous episode with the philadelphia experiment and montauk And I was able to track it down in PDF form, actually. And I'm just going to read the introductory guide to the reader out of this book because I just love how he sets the whole book up. And it probably sets up this episode really well on the Montauk Project nicely, just as well. So let me just read that now. Here, guide to the reader. Because of the subject matter of this book is controversial, we would like to offer some guidelines. This book is an exercise in consciousness. It is an invitation to view time in a new manner and expand your awareness of the universe. Time rules our fate and ushers in our death. Although we are regulated by its laws, there is much that we do not know about time and how it relates to our consciousness. Hopefully, at the very least, this information will broaden your horizons. Some of the data you will read in this book can be considered as soft facts, in quotation. Soft facts are not untrue. They are just not backed by the irrefutable <laughs> documentation. I'm having Jacques Vallée flashbacks reading this out in the last episode. It also contains hard facts, would be documentation or hard physical evidence that could stand up to scrutiny. By the nature of the subject matter and security considerations, hard facts about the Montauk Project have been very difficult to obtain. 
There's also an area between soft and hard, which can be termed gray facts. These would be very plausible, but not as easily provable as hard facts. Any serious investigation will show that a Montauk project did, in fact, exist. One can also find people who have been experimented on in some fashion or another. This book is not an attempt to prove anything. Purpose is to get a story that is of essential interest to scientific researchers, metaphysicians, and citizens of the planet Earth. It is the story of one particular individual and his circle of contacts. It is hoped that more individuals will come out of the closet and that researchers will come forth with more investigations and documentation. This work is being presented as non-fiction as it contains no falsehoods to the best knowledge of the authors. However, it can be read as pure science fiction if that is more suitable to the reader. Short glossary has been provided in the back to assist with ordinary electronic terms and those of a more esoteric nature. Scientists who read this book should understand that the definitions are designed to assist the general reader's understanding. They're not purported to be the latest technical jargon. Okay, so there we have the setup, this episode, and the book. Yeah, it kind of bothers me right off the bat. Several things in there, but I'm going to just I, focus on the fact yeah. that if you don't believe this at all, just read it for fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can't really say anything to that. <laughs> but yeah, there are some things in there that's just kind of... Yeah. yeah. So I thought I'd bring that to your attention first off. So let's talk about Preston Nichols for a sec. He was a 40-ish duration of years old, Long Island-based microwave engineer who supposedly lost his job at AIL, which is an electronics defense contractor, and he began remembering glimpses of an alter ego existence which he believed he was living, in which he was being used for his technical expertise to revamp and maintain the radar at Montauk Air Base for a series of unofficial secret underground experiments performed by a group of scientists and military men who had originally operated out of the well-known Brookhaven National Laboratory at Upton, Long Island. I do talk about that a little bit later, so if I lost you, don't worry. I'll come back. I hope. I hope I don't lead you astray there and I don't come back to it. If not, you'll probably forget anyway. So through hypnosis and brainwashing, he was made to forget that he was living a double life by the peeps in charge of this program. Montauk, the Montauk Project. So yeah, Stan Nichols bases this book and information on Montauk on recovered and repressed memories. And then slowly others, as in other people, come forward such as Rumroll. Al Bielik, who saw the movie The Philadelphia Experiment. You may also remember him from our episode about The Philadelphia Experiment and underwent an overwhelming sense of deja vu. He does move on from the Philadelphia Project episode. He does graduate into this episode as well. I know everyone's like, oh, I know him. He's quite the character. I know. <laughs> we got a good sense of him. I actually don't cover him in such detail in this one, so I'm really glad Taylor intuitively covered it in the last one. After undergoing regression, Bielik was able to recover a massive store of repressed memories, not only about the Philadelphia experiment, but also the Montauk project. Of course, MK Ultra was the source of these wiped memories. And, oh, his brother was involved, which you know, you do know. It was nicely set up in the last episode. And Bielik later goes on to present his story at a MUFON conference. I want to check with you. I couldn't find anything from his brother. No. Could you? I don't even know if the brother really exists. Yeah. Okay, good. I just wanted yeah. to make sure. 
Yeah, that's that's soft fact is what we can refer to that as. With that, not only does the Montauk Project originate with the Philadelphia Experiment because of these tie-ins, technically, but it also is the continuation on of the Philadelphia Experiment program. So, not only with Al Bielik, am I ever glad we just covered it in the previous episode? I'm also, again, glad that we covered it in the previous episode, because that takes a load off me in this episode. See, that's why I told you. I told you that episode was a little bit longer than you expected, because we had to cover some weird stuff. Or yeah, some and it was just intuitive on your part. You didn't even know. Mm-hmm. You didn't even know. So yeah, blah, 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 like Philadelphia Experiment. Listen to it again right before this one or just use your memory. Remember it just right now. Not all at once. Listen to this. You know the story, hopefully. Started with the Rainbow Project, which wasn't really covered in in the last episode, but just believe me. Started with the Rainbow Project. It could be a soft fact. I'm not sure if that was actually proven that it was the Rainbow Project. If it was the Rainbow, I can't remember it this time. I just assumed it was covered in the last episode and it wasn't. So that caught me off guard. And then it morphed into many other different projects and continued on, eventually being absorbed by the Phoenix Project. This is this is a real project already operating at this time so i don't know if this was a guise maybe to absorb this project i don't know if maybe they just like glommed on to an actual project that was already running the phoenix project was investigating the use of radio songs long story very short so short it may not even make sense this one guy in the phoenix project is studying orgon energy which is a weird thing, and again, not going to get into it with this project. But what this dude found with the Orgon energy was that he could modify weather with his work on Orgon. Oh, not sure how they relate, but it is what it is, and I'm just here to make it more confusing at this point because I'm really bad at explaining these things. So that's what's going on in the Phoenix Project. We're all up to speed here and fully are aware of that. So point of the matter is, Phoenix Project's operating and Philadelphia Experiment has been sucked into this. And looking at the phenomena now that occurred on the USS Eldridge, and now the surviving researchers of Project Rainbow that USS Eldridge and the Philadelphia Experiment happened under are called back to this project. And they're researching the technical aspects of the electromagnetic bottle the electromagnetic bottle is what they were researching with the the Philadelphia experiment. And I believe what they are researching with the Philadelphia experiment was exactly what you said, like masking ships from... Well, the alleged reason was for invisibility, but yeah. it, it likely was actually to mask ships from magnetic fields. Yeah, so that's originally what the Philadelphia experiment was supposedly operating under. Masking ships from enemies, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, like to dumb it down to to my terms. Yeah, for, for just different avenues that aren't just your eyes. Like that's, I think, the fairest way to put it. Yeah, so the Philadelphia experiment technically was just that gone awry from my understanding looking into this. So that's what the electromagnetic bottle that we're talking about with the Philadelphia experiment is referring to, is that kind of using an electromagnetic field to make themselves invisible from enemies, essentially. And they're researching it again. It's back under this project. 
And they're researching now again the possible military applications of the psychological effects of the magnetic field that Taylor talked about in the previous episode with all the people who went crazy and started spontaneously disappearing and going crazy mostly. They really wanted to study that. So they prepared a report about these effects and they presented it to the US Congress and it was rejected as it was too dangerous. So then the proposal was made directly to the Department of Defense, promising a new weapon that could drive an enemy insane, inducing the symptoms of schizophrenia at the touch of a button. Without Congress approval, this obviously would have to be secretly funded, and secretly funded it was from a cache of 10 billion Nazi golds covered from a train found by U.S. soldiers in a train tunnel in France. You know, the one where anyone who has gold hides their gold. You know the one, right? Well, yeah, we don't talk about it, though, because then people know where to get the gold. Yeah. With all this Nazi gold, work quickly got started in Brookhaven National Laboratory. I do get back to it. See, I keep my promises, guys. On Long Island. But it was quickly discovered that the project required a large radar dish for the mine control. And since this was top secret, they couldn't just install one. There'd be too many questions, making it not top secret. Lucky for them, the U.S. Air Force Base had a decommissioned base at Montauk. Of all places, who would have guessed? Not too far away from where they were storing their gold, and Montauk had a semi-automatic ground environment radar installation. And we all know that is important. Not only that, it was large and remote at the time, of course not really now, and had water access for further secretiveness. Equipment was moved, presumably by water, but maybe not, it didn't say and installed it in an underground bunker beneath the base and it probably cost them like 100 gold bars that seems right to me this area was already rife with speculation about what was going on and conspiracy theories as it had been occupied by the military dating back to world war one there were underground bunkers and miles of tunnels hidden underneath the overgrowth and the rest of the facility was designed to look like a neighborhood in case of overhead flybys which is like super creepy to begin with yeah they did that a lot in world war ii like the uh boeing head facilities that had an entire town built over top of it so if somebody flew over you couldn't tell that it was a facility yeah it's so creepy like that way i don't know why nobody's made a horror movie about this already because it's creepy now they had the base funded by Nazi gold. The experiments began in the 1970s and during this time the Montauk project started to focus on mind control. Naturally, that's where the research would take you because that's what it was founded on. So I seem surprised at this point. Following are some of the goings-ons claimed to have occurred at the new digs. First, the facility was expanded to as many as 12 levels and several hundred workers without anyone in the town noticing the tons of building materials or hundreds of workers required. Some reports have the facility extending under the town of Montauk itself. Homeless people and kids were abducted and subjected to huge amounts of electromagnetic radiation. You survived. People had their psychic abilities enhanced to the point where they could materialize objects out of thin air. This dude named Stuart Wordlow claims to have been involved in the Montauk project, and as a result, he says his psionic faculties were boosted, but at the cost of emotional instability, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other issues. I'll get back to him. Experiments were conducted in teleportation. 
A porthole in time, I like how they call it a porthole, was created which allows researchers to travel anywhere in time or space. This was developed in a stable time tunnel. Contact was made with alien extraterrestrials through the time tunnel, and technology was exchanged with them which enhanced the project. This allowed broader access to hyperspace. An alien monster traveled through the time tunnel, destroyed equipment, and devoured researchers. The tunnel was shut down and the creature was destroyed. So sorry, Chelsea, I just need yes. to stop at that point. That likely would be like what um, Stranger Things was based on. Yes, the Montauk, I, and I get into some of these points a little bit more. Okay. Okay. The Montauk monster is essentially, what, the, what the hell do they call them in Stranger Things? Oh, the uh, Demigorgons. Demigorgons. I was just about to call it Gorgonzola. That's not right. Mind control experiments were conducted on runaway boys who were abducted and brought out to the base where they underwent excruciating periods of both physical and mental torture in order to break their minds. Then their minds were reprogrammed. Many were supposedly killed due to the process and buried on the site. Again, if you watch Stranger Things, you're going to find some correlations with 11 and 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> All those kids. On or about August 12, 1983, the time travel project at Camp Hero interlocked in hyperspace with the original Rainbow Project back in 1943. The USS Eldridge was drawn into hyperspace and trapped there. Two men, Al Bielik and Duncan Cameron, Duncan Cameron was his brother, both claimed to have leaped from the deck of the Eldridge while it was in hyperspace and ended up after a period of severe disorientation at Camp Hero in the year 1983. Here they claimed to have met John Van Neumann, a famous physicist and mathematician, even though he was known to have died in 1957. Von Neumann had supposedly worked on the original Philadelphia experiment, but the U.S. Navy denies this. We heard that story on the last episode, so that was a little recap for you. Staff from the Camp Hero site traveled to the USS Eldridge and shut down the generators, causing the ship to return to Philadelphia Naval Yard in 1943 and causing the time tunnel to collapse. Metahumans and experiments and special serums to create such individuals were tested there. And after the experiments were completed, or the destruction of the facility, depending on which book you read, the facility was closed for good and all the staff were brainwashed, shot, or sworn to absolute secrecy, and all records destroyed. According to some stories, research continues at the site to this day with enhanced security. Those are some highlights for you. So, it, it not only sets the scene, I think it gets right down to the nitty-gritty of the Montauk project. So, let's move on. Flash elaborate on some of these things. Others I will not touch on ever again in my life. In this book, Preston Nichols details his works on the Montauk chair in which electromagnetism was used to further the psychic powers of whoever sat in it. Felix's brother, Duncan Cameron, was able to manifest objects using the device as he already had substantial psychic abilities, which they liked. And there is this one quote that comes from Nichols' book about this. Quote, first experiment was called the seeing eye. With a lock of a person's hair or other appropriate objects in his hand, Duncan, Cameron, the supposed psychic, Felix's brother, would concentrate on the person and be able to see as if he was seeing through their eyes, hearing their ears, hearing through their ears, and feeling through their body. He could actually see through other people anywhere on the planet. End quote. Nichols tried to harness Felix's brother's power in the Montauk chair to conduct mind control experiments using the satellite dishes of course 
This is where the abducted kids come into the picture and Nichols calls them the Montauk boys. I told you this had it all. So add in the Nazi gold and the abductions of homeless people and here we have the Montauk boys. So these abductees are brought in and Nichols writes that they were experimented on. Some are sent through portals into the unknown of space and time never to be heard of again. According to Nichols, these kids were so psychologically broken down by the project that most would forget all about their time here until Nichols book came out and some started to come forward which I told you we'd come back to Stuart Swordlow he was a 52 year old man living in Michigan and he told the Sun in 2017 that he was one of the Montauk boys Nichols describes and that he and others like him were subjected to horrific abuse Quote, when the experiment started, they'd target expendable boys like orphans, runaways, or the children of drug addicts. Kind of kids no one would really come looking for. The aim was to fracture your mind so that they could program you. It would change the temperature from very hot to very cold, starve you, then overfeed you. I remember being beaten with a wooden pole. And they loved to hold your head underwater until you nearly drowned. That was effective. Makes a person likely to listen to and obey their rescuer. We also used LSD to put our brains into an altered state. Unquote. That's not the story that comic books taught me about orphans. <laughs> they become superheroes. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, the, they kind of become superheroes here. Like, I guess. <laughs> In a very abstract way. Yeah, that's how you turn into Eleven from Stranger Things. He also added that he observed project staffers sexually abusing the children in order to break them down. Yike. Swordlow even alleged that he and other Montauk boys were sent to Mars and back to biblical times via the project's portals. So there's that. And we go on. That brings up a good point. Nichols and Bielik also say that they themselves were frequently abducted from their homes by scientists who wanted to break them psychologically and implant subconscious commands. Nichols says that they could reliably travel to other times and places such as Mars. Project even successfully created a wormhole. Yeah, that's the part I skipped over in my description of Bielik, the parts on Mars, and also a lot of the stuff that happened in Montauk. Well, you didn't want to cover Montauk because here we are today discussing it. Nichols claims that whatever someone sitting in the Montauk chair envisioned would first appear on the transmitter screen before being manifested into the world solid or transparent. It was one of those. Eventually, everyone that wasn't in charge revolted because they were terrified of what was going on. Obviously, there's a lot of horrific things going on. In comes the Montauk monster. Shut down the project. Here's what Nichols has to say about the Montauk monster. We finally decided we'd had enough of the whole experiment. The contingency program was activated by someone approaching Duncan while he was in the chair and simply whispering, The time is now. At this moment, he let loose a monster from his subconscious. Are you excited? I just like that he was whispering that. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you build suspense for this shit. I know, I know. And the transmitter actually portrayed a hairy monster. It was big, hairy, hungry, and nasty, but it didn't appear underground in the null point. I don't know what that means. It showed up somewhere on the base. It would eat anything it could find, and it smashed everything in sight. Several people saw it, but almost everyone described a different beast. Weird. End quote. Beast allegedly ran amok all over the base, and the only way the personnel could bring the ordeal to a halt is to disconnect the power to the radar. 
When that didn't work, they supposedly chopped the power cables and radar waveguides with hatchets until the electromagnetic field lost its power and the beast faded back into the hyperspace from which it had been created. And <laughs> why didn't the power go down when they first tried to turn it off? Electromagnetic field generated at Montauk and tunneled back through time to 1943 when a similar field was being generated on board the USS Eldridge in the Philadelphia Harbor. It wasn't in the Philadelphia Harbor though, right? Yeah, it was. It was in Philadelphia. It was, okay. Yeah. Okay. There was Sorry, a lockup. The in ship Hippers wasn't... Yeah. The ship's records don't show it in there. That's where it allegedly had the Philadelphia experiment. Okay, okay. That's why yeah. I'm confused. Yeah, okay. that's, uh, yeah. So there was a lockup in hyperspace and one experiment was feeding the other. Employees were then brainwashed and in 1984, the lower levels of the base were filled with cement. What I remember, I don't remember this being the Montauk monster. Do you remember there's that thing going around and there's that like weird pig looking monster thing yeah, the on raccoon. the beach? that said yeah. Is that a raccoon? Yeah. It's a really bad looking raccoon. Some it's seen some yeah. shit. That was just weird looking something that washed up and everyone was like, oh my god, it's the Montauk monster. That was just a conspiracy theory that was perpetuated by this. And that's <laughs> where I originally knew the Montauk monster from that I mentioned at the top. Yeah, that of the one episode. seems a lot less intimidating than this this fellow. Yeah, this one seems like well, it depends on who you ask, because apparently everyone saw it differently, which is super spooky. And that's Wait, another do you think really er good somebody ever movie. saw it as the yeah. bloated raccoon corpse that was the Montauk monster? Probably. In theory, yeah, somebody Probably did. not, because that's something that we actually circulated in real life. In theory, yeah, if enough people saw it. But imagine all the scary things they could have saw. That Another really good scary movie idea. Really good scary movie idea, Chelsea. If only they'd made a TV yeah. series or something about it and entitled it they Montauk. Oh, yeah. No, but nobody saw the Montauk monster that appeared differently to everyone. No, but actually, this is actually explaining a lot. The kids who see the monster first, or at least the ones that were experiencing the show through, they're Dungeons and Dragons players, and they call it the Demigorgon, and that's a character in yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. So is yeah. that not them experiencing it through what they perceive? And could it not be that everybody else is actually seeing something different? It could be, but it's, I mean, it'd be hard to put that into a TV show, I guess. No, and that's why I'm speculating this. I also have only watched yeah. one season. It could be. It's also never been stated that everybody's seeing it differently, so. No, but why would you talk um, about that? If you've said you've seen it, you've seen it. Like, yeah, nobody asks true. you to describe it, do they? True, but that would be something just anybody would have to assume is that it appears differently to somebody else. Unless on a TV show, they outright say it and then everybody would have that same understanding. Yeah. <laughs> Not just some people that think yeah. that. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm putting it as canon. Oh. That's that's how Stranger Things works. Everybody's experiencing okay. a different monster. <laughs> so, <laughs> says the person who only watched one of the seasons. One season and, and half an episode. <laughs> <laughs> so now obviously like most things we research in this podcast a quick google search will put up more conspiracy theory hits than anything but on this one i don't think i would be too quick to judge even though it comes back with the very same hits because the cia has a documented history of disturbing experiments specifically like the ones carried out at montauk there is a paper trail for some of this stuff. And we also know that the government has an interest in things like this. 
like us at Journey to the Fringe did look at remote viewers, part of which were some of a government program, Project Stargate. Also a very well real as, and settled history thing. Like that, that did happen. Yeah. We yeah. have records for it. Yeah, we do. MK Ultra. So I think when you look at the government documents combined with the government track record of actual programs looking into psychic phenomena, there's always a possibility. Whether or not it's true, another thing. The Montauk book does come a series <laughs> and does have other books. Being a part of a series, that means there are multiple books. So while I would love to have a confirmation bias and say, yes, look how real this is, I did start off the episode with the introduction from whoever it is that wrote this. I can't remember. Preston Nichols. I remembered that super fast, actually. You should be proud of me. He pretty much started off being like, if you believe it, great. If you don't, then it's just a good story. So I am going to divulge the following information to you and bless you with the other information of some stuff that happens in the rest of the book on the series. So let's look at the experiments that happen moving forward to finish this episode off. But I really just said that really weird. So... <laughs> Filmmakers were brought to the facility to begin work on a project that would culminate with the moon landing hoax. Military personnel in charge were in fact cultists, built a 50-foot ziggurat or step pyramid out of titanium for some esoteric reasons. Early work on inventing the internet and its implementation were undertaken there. Nazi scientists from Operation Paperclip were involved in some of the experiments there. Experimental flying saucer aircraft prototypes were created there and shipped to other secret bases for testing. Bioengineering projects undertaken there eventually created the Jersey Devil, which I'm pretty sure actually does eat back way further than the Montauk yeah, project. But Chelsea, oh. again, some time travel was alleged, so it was created there right. and then time did, traveled he, back. We did state that off in the opener yeah. and not in the opener. The opener was a completely different thing from this episode in his introduction to his book and our episode. Black helicopters were manufactured and flown there. Fucking black helicopters. Evil. Nobody That's else makes me. those. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Nikola Tesla, whose death was Faked in a conspiracy as the chief director of operations at the base. <laughs> Mass psychological experiments such as the use of enormous subliminal messages projects and the creation of a men in black corpse to confuse and frighten the public were invented there. A men in black corpse? Yeah. Corpse like corporation. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. That makes way more sense. Can I just add, yeah, you can. Nikola Tesla died at the age of 86, like penniless in an apartment building. Yeah, with, with his friends, the pigeons. Yeah, yeah, who aren't real. But I just, I want to emphasize that, like, they faked his death at 86. Yeah. So they could, he could take over a corp in Montauk. This is 1943, too. Like, he's well over the age, like, you would expect to live. Yeah, none yeah. of these are really making okay. sense to me. Okay. And, and there's just one more, and that's that the AIDS virus was created there. Okay, that actually ties into the Philadelphia experiment because Philadelphia, the movie in which Tom Hanks gets AIDS. It does! Uh, oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I can just back. finish that sentence right there. <laughs> yeah, so with that, that is the end of my episode. And to end this up, do you have anything to add here? Did the trains ever come up? 
No, not once. That's why I found that a valuable piece of information in your episode. Okay. At once did well, not ever see anything about trains of all things. Well, I, it might come up actually if we cover others. I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now so everybody knows. Secret bases throughout the U.S. Oh, that's good. Yeah. The next likely one we would talk about is Dolce. After that, I actually don't know where we'd go. Those That's are the, a like, really good thing to put on our list, actually. With that, I'm going to have Preston Nichols himself take us out of this episode. Some of us are doing multiple mm-hmm. timelines if we have the capability of going from, let's say, today to mm-hmm. two weeks ago and working the whole two weeks over again, what will happen is the first mm-hmm. pass will become an alternate reality since you cannot have a time paradox, which is mm-hmm. where you and you exist, mm-hmm. two of you at the same time. That cannot be. So one of the passes, typically the first pass, will become an alternate reality, an alternate timeline. Now what did they do though with Al when they Uh, allowed him to grow up the same time he was already in the Navy. Well, Al's story is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. They allowed Al to go through and have his whole life from Mm -hmm. 1916 to 1943. Actually, I think it's 1947. Then they reportedly had the capability of regressing Al back physically to a baby and then sent him through a time portal and inserted him in another family. He grew up all over again. There were two Al Bielik's. One is Edward Cameron and one is Al Bielik. And even if they meet, there's going to be no terrible things happening Mm -hmm. because of the fact that there was a step back in time means he is meant to coexist two places in one time. I did the same thing. At Montauk, I was working at BJ's. At the same time, I was working at AIL. Well, did you get two paychecks? Did you get to enjoy no, all I that didn't. abundance? No. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, that's a shame. <laughs> I was actually working two timelines, one at BJ's mm-hmm. and one at Montauk. In other words, I would be in Melville doing my regular eight-hour-a-day job. At the same time, I would be out at Montauk doing my job at the, as well. Now, what would happen to my memories is memory is keyed in by where you are and what timeline you're on. Mm-hmm. The, as far as memory goes, the first pass through would become an alternate reality memory, although theoretically I could have called myself if I knew how to get through the switchboards and do it. Well, with that, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh